0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And
1: this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height.
0: And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff
1: we're here to talk about in this episode include...
0: Languages in role-playing. Summer movies. The Ask Ken and Robin Lightning Lightning
1: Round. round. And the Kazakhstan Pentagram. (laughs)
0: Before we get started here on Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff, we would like to welcome, with open outstretched arms, a new lead sponsor to the show, and that is Gorilla Games. Ken, what is Gorilla Games up to?
1: Gorilla Games is perhaps lured by our uh, bold pointing into the future. They're up to a Kickstarter. They are kickstarting their new game, Monster Derby, right now, which is not uh, about uh, gorillas or other monsters wearing Magritte-like hats.
0: In fact, it's the full contact. Road Rage Road Race, try saying that seven times fast, board game, where you secretly pick the winners and then take turns moving the monsters.
1: Each monster, I suspect, has some sort of um, wacky monster powers because otherwise you'd sort of be leaving that on the table to be picked up. And Jeff Siedek, the uh, honcho behind Gorilla Games, is too canny a game designer to leave such a thing lying around where monsters could get it
0: a monster without uh wacky powers is like a day without sunshine so right
1: it's basically just an animal exactly
0: I guess so yeah. yes or or you know just someone with a bad attitude but this is not the case here so check it out at com slash monster derby that's gorilla com monster derby and that's gorilla as in the member of the ape family, not as in the uh, insurgency.
1: Yes, and uh, check it out before Labor Day because that is when the Kickstarter campaign ends and you would hate to be caught on the side of the road not engaged in racing or road raging.
0: Yes, unless you hate fun, you want this game.
1: The susurrus of talk and the rattle of dice tell us that we are rounding the corner into the gaming hut. And in the gaming hut, it is indeed that susurrus of talk that has drawn the eagle-eyed attention of my co-podcaster, Robin. What of susurri and talking?
0: So I thought this week we would take a look at another time-honored component of gaming, especially fantasy gaming, but any sort of modern game, which is its treatment of languages and different languages and how you communicate with one another across language barriers, whether that is important or not, and how you can make language more interesting and fun in your game and make it more of a gateway to something that makes something happen rather than a roadblock preventing things from happening. Of course, I think one of the reasons that we pay a lot of attention to language in role-playing games is that, of course, Professor Tolkien was a uh, linguist, among other things, and invented a bunch of uh, languages. Uh, M.A.R. Barker uh, did the same, and uh, we have been left with the idea that a really realistic world has realistic languages in it, but of course it's difficult enough to speak real-world languages other than one's own, let alone uh, Elvish or Orcish and, and so on. So the question becomes how do you translate that into being part of the gaming experience as opposed to part of the literary experience of fantasy where it's easy enough to flip to a appendix at the end of something and see the author display their linguistic chops but how do you make that fun at the gaming table
1: yeah the question sort of gets answered fairly early by gary gygax when he realizes that it isn't particularly fun which is why everyone speaks common and so you begin with that uh, ability to talk amongst yourselves that, you know, Gene Roddenberry uh, realized you had to have in any sort of ongoing adventure story when he put the universal translator into uh, uh, Star Trek and then very uh, ruthlessly attempted to ignore the questions uh, raised by that. The, (laughs) (laughs) the, The question of languages, I guess, is not so much... How to prevent it from blocking your fun because we've sort of, you know, like I say, that's old technology. I think a more fun question, ironically, is how to make it actually fun to have a language that no one else speaks or to use languages in play, not just as another sawhorse to jump over for the players, but also a a way to make it fun and empowering to have a a language uh, that you speak that maybe no one else does or languages that exist. How, How does... How do you think that uh, can be gone about, Robin?
0: Well, I think the best way to do that is to focus not on whether you can communicate with the other characters and creatures that you meet in the course of your starship travels or roaming across your fantasy land. Because it is still possible for a game to make the mistake of saying, well, uh, in order to be able to talk to uh, this creature, you have to speak Draconic or you have to speak Klingon. And then, unless you're absolutely certain that a at least one member of the party played by a player who is going to be there that night does actually speak Klingon or Draconic and gets to feel cool because they are then able to step up and be part of the scene and translate or, or whatever it is, that's fun if you do it right, but if you do the opposite, which is you know you fail to have uh, somebody on in the group who can talk, that is still a problem that crops up even with the universal translators sometimes or with um, you know, common tongue being pervasive. But aside from not doing that, I think the way to look at it is to look at the way that language can be used to give you cultural details about different uh, creatures and uh, cultures that you encounter along your way in whatever the game is. So, for example, the structure of languages affects how we think in the various languages that spring from the Indo-European language family, tense is very important. And according to David Anthony in his book, The Horse, the Wheel, and Language, at one point, the earliest version of the language that spawned all of the other languages in that family, uh, which is called Proto-Indo-European, used to have six tenses. And over thousands of years of evolution, uh, we have realized mostly that you don't actually need that many tenses, but it shows that people who speak those languages nonetheless are very key to the question of when did things happen? That's a really important thing that you have to build into the structure of every sentence that you speak in any of these languages. Whereas, uh, by contrast, Anthony looks at the Hopi language, uh, where The important distinction is not when something happened, but whether the thing that you're saying is if you are certain of its truth, if you're certain of its truth because you witnessed it personally, or if it is somehow questionable. So the main question in Indo-European languages is what time is it? And the main question in Hopi is, is this true? And so if you come up with analogs for something like that to characterize the major cultures in your Uh, world, that can sort of give you a keynote to show you something really important and key about those two cultures. And you might want to, you know, basically assume that whatever the common tongue is in whatever world it is, is sort of like our own language structure, because that's too much of a main, uh, a brain teaser. <laughs> Cause
1: that's the whole point of making it the common tongue. It,
0: exactly. So you know, you assume the common tongue is is sort of like English or German or whatever it is that you uh, speak at home, and so presumably, you know, somehow common is very focused on when things happened, and, you know, it might be uh, the elves who are very concerned with uh, whether things are true or not, or the dwarves, or, or whatever it is, and, and at typical Ken Heidean fashion, you can raid w- real-world languages for those sorts of uh, distinctions and find things about them that uh, characterize uh, whatever culture it is. And even within U- Indo-European, for example, some languages care whether things are masculine or feminine everything is assigned a uh, a gender and other ones like English have left that to one side and even within that you can co- contrast two human cultures or again you know Maybe the uh, the gnomes are very concerned with uh, which of four different genders any object belongs to. And then that can give you all sorts of things to riff off of as you develop the culture of the gnomes. And even just sort of slipping that in and never dealing with it again creates that sort of illusion of depth that makes a world uh, where you may spend most of your time fighting monsters and taking treasure seem like a real solid world with detail and nuance to it, even if you don't really go into the weeds of what that means exactly.
1: Also, you don't need to take it from real human language or or certainly from accurate linguistics, because a lot of these assessments of what a language is fundamentally like or what a language was before we have writing, uh, they change like other sorts of uh, scientific theory change. So stuff that was rock-solid linguistic theory even 15 or 20 years ago is now... Risible and nonsensical, and, mo- and to be mocked on places like Language Log, but in a fantasy world you don't have to care, or in a, a, a world that has deliberately got some sort of supernatural component, or you know, if your game takes place in the 1930s before we had scientific linguistics in any real sense, um, you can just go ahead and make stuff up anyway. But another place to take these sorts of ideas is from science fiction. There's sort of a sub genre of science fiction that deals with linguistic problems and linguistic shaping of society. And I'm thinking of things like Ian Watson's The Embedding, or of course Jack Vance's The Languages of PAL, which is all about uh, languages being able to sort of shape thought and shape activity um, in a fairly, um, in in a way that is no longer accepted by most linguists, but is still a great deal of fun for gaming.
0: Right. The, The thing to do here is to focus not on what is accurate according to the latest scholarship unless that is that very concept is the very center of what it is that you're doing in a hard science fiction setting but most of the time you are just looking for something cool to spin out to go with all the other vivid things in your world so that really you're looking to take an idea from linguistics and adapt it into a literary conceit rather than to blow away all of the other players at your table with your expertise in matters of linguistics, unless, of course, you're playing in the comment room of the linguistics department, in which case... Uh, see the first thing I just mentioned.
1: Yeah. So I, I guess that's sort of, you know, one thing you can do with languages, you can use them to sort of drive other psychologies, uh, whether they be aliens or elves or the humans from across the mountains who are suspicious and weird or the isolated tribe you've stumbled onto that may or may not have a, la- a word that means Sathagwa is going to eat you. And so you have to no no they're like the Eskimos they have 150 words for the dog was going to eat you. <laughs> well, he does have
0: 150 different ways of eating you. Yeah, that's to be true. Fair. Yeah,
1: it's it's actually not that uh, confusing when you think about it. Yeah, and
0: and it comes up a lot. It
1: does. So. It does come up a lot. Uh, That thing about the Eskimos, by the way, to prevent angry linguists from flooding the comment section.
0: As they are wont to do.
1: That is a a ridiculous urban legend and has no basis in fact. Eskimos don't have any more words for snow than any of us who live in Chicago do. It is an icy canard. It is an icy, the worst kind of canard because it doesn't crisp up nicely. No. So the other thing you can do with uh, language as opposed to using it to paint your cultures, you can also, of course, use it as a magical act. Uh, That is, you know, one of the things that Language is good for uh, arcane. Languages sound neat when used as uh, the source of spells. It's why you you know use your uh, spells in Latin and supernatural or in uh, Buffy you have uh, other terrific languages. Some of which exist only for the purpose of making up awesome spells in, like Sensar, the ancient language of Atlantis, or uh, the the ancient runes of my of my Nazi occultist buddies. So the notion that you can take these the, this language and Not only is it a means of communication, but it's also a means of power. And it's not just the power to maybe talk to the dragon and say, Hey, dragon, how about if we just give you all of our gold and you don't toast us alive? But the power to compel the dragon to do something or to compel a demon to go fight the dragon for you. That a language uh, becomes another kind of knowledge. That there's a key that you turn and in addition to it being a way to communicate, you can maybe write poetry in this language that has power over the earth. You can use it uh, to um, sing down the moon as the Thessalian witches were supposed to, or you can use it to um, uh, summon up demons in good old traditional ways, speaking the names that are not supposed to be spoken, whether they be uh, Sathagwa or Beelzebub or whatever they happen to be.
0: And there is something quite magical about language because it's such a complex thing, and we learn to speak it when we are children by a process that seems... Organic and surprising, and one day uh, the kid is just vocalizing, and the next day saying da da, and then pretty soon he's making complex demands for the toys and ice cream that he wants. And so you can leverage that idea to find interesting sort of plot hooks that play off of the idea of language and either the uh, need to be understood or the terror of not being understood. So you could, uh, for example, do in the esoterrorists or another modern occult game, you could do a riff on the midwitch cuckoos, and let's say that all of the young uh, children, pre-kindergarten age, in a small village, suddenly start speaking a Completely alien language, and at first the you know the linguists show up and they think that the kids have basically elaborated their own invented language as twins sometimes do, and then they there's a while there when it seems to be Aramaic or some or uh, Tocharian or some or Etruscan or some extinct language, and then gradually it becomes apparent that the language is continuing to evolve and evolve and that it is some sort of alien tongue or representative of a new uh, consciousness. And then you get that horror thing of, do I study this phenomenon or do I suppress it before it gets out of hand? And everyone is infected by this language and it changes the way that we think. And as uh, William S. Burroughs famously said, uh, language is a virus. And you could literalize that a bit more and get a great hook for a horror scenario.
1: Yes, uh, much like my own uh, GURPS the Madness dossier, which is available currently in the back pages of GURPS Horror 3rd Edition, and will eventually come out in PDF from Steve Jackson Games in an expanded 4th editionized version. The notion of the weaponized or alien language as a, as a cosmic threat, uh, to some extent, goes even farther back than Burroughs. It goes back to things like Henry Cutner's great story, Nothing But Gingerbread Left, in which... He created a, uh, a an earworm so powerful that it destroyed Nazi Germany. And the trouble, of course, is that it's still around. Uh, there's plenty of other things like that in, you know, sort of the, the literature. I'm, of course, very fond of uh, something that's not quite a language, but it's you can certainly use a language as it, which is Borges Klan Ukbar Orbis Tertius about an encyclopedia from an alternate world that rewrites our thinking. And you could certainly do that with a language just as well.
0: And in a space opera game like Ash and Stars, you could literally have a weaponized language. You could have a bomb uh, that, through radio frequencies or a pheromone alteration or whatever it is that the enemy race drops on the battlefield to take away the soldiers uh, on the other side's ability to uh, speak to one another and instead they can speak a language that they themselves do not comprehend, but uh, uh, this alien race can. So you could examine there, in uh, again in science fiction form, the idea of uh, language as a weapon of colonization.
1: The other thing that languages are good for, besides communicating and using as sort of magic spells, or using as rewriting of other people's brains, of course, is as... A sort of a stored ability to store not just meaning in you know, as as is normally, but languages can also store whole concepts. That in, in a way you can use you can have the notion that the name is the thing that a lengthy uh, linguistic uh, work, you know, maybe a, a lost linear a inscription or something that we can't decipher, is actually not just a magical ritual, but the language itself is the method of storing it it, and speaking it out is like downloading whatever it contains into the universe. Not quite the same thing as summoning a demon, more like using the language to contain some force or some notion that was present at one point and is not here now. Uh, I guess Snow Crash sort of comes around to that with the notion of the Nam Shub, the the tablets that uh, confused language in the early times. And contained within them the potential for all other language to be uh, extant, which is sort of meta. But on the other hand, it worked for Neil Stevenson. So there you go.
0: And you were speaking earlier about new advances in linguistics. And one interesting discovery is that almost all languages have the same term for. I guess we've talked enough about this thing, and it's time for another segment on Ken and Robin talk about stuff. So the wafting smell of hot butter popcorn from the lobby and the unmistakable stick of dried soda pop to the bottom of our shoes suggested that we have once again entered the cinema hut. And this time, as summer movie season draws to a close, I thought we would do a spoiler-free review of the summer in blockbusters, since we've talked a bunch so far about uh, Chinese movies that uh, you'd probably didn't get a lot of chance to see. So let's talk about the movies that everybody went to see this summer, starting, Ken, with Iron Man 3. What did you think?
1: I liked it well enough. Um, I certainly, uh, as you know, I object to Daddy Issues being uh, the go-to hook for story that uh, apparently some fetid excrescence of Joseph Campbell has made every scriptwriter in Hollywood go to.
0: It may be that every scriptwriter in Hollywood has Daddy Issues.
1: It may be, but in that case, they need to get over it. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and I very much appreciated Shane Black writing, uh, pretty much those exact words into Iron Man three after the welter that was the middle uh, two thirds of Iron Man two, or at least the, the experiential two thirds. So I liked the uh, I liked the crispness of the script. I think that in a lot of ways the ending sort of you know came apart. But I enjoyed the ride when I got there uh, because it is an Iron yeah. Man
0: movie. So, <laughs>
1: but I but I certainly enjoyed the ride on the way and the notion of making Tony Stark the hero instead of Iron Man. While um, I enjoyed it at the time, I think is not the sort of model that we want to follow for a movie theoretically about a guy who dresses up in an awesome robot suit and shoots supervillains. Yes,
0: yeah, so I, I I enjoyed it too. Although I have to say that it kind of has faded in my memory in the months. Since I've seen it. And the thing that really sticks in my mind is the coolest part is actually the credit sequence after all of the action <laughs> that is uh, done up like a, a 70s style TV series opening credit sequence uh, with clips from all uh, three movies and a really cool, zingy uh, 70s Lalo Schifrin style uh, version of the Iron Man theme. So maybe that says something about the film, but I certainly enjoyed it while i was watching it uh iron man in particular for me summons up my post marvel comics uh stress disorder <laughs> yeah. and uh uh when in my brief uh weird turn uh trying to write marvel comics certainly the question of how to deal with the mandarin was on my plate uh when i uh, wrote a few issues of iron man and uh, at that time the uh attempt was to make temujin his son into a um, adversary figure who had all of these Chinese uh, tropes around him, but was not racist. <laughs> it is very unfortunate for the Iron Man legacy that his signature uh, villain is something out of uh, 1920s Sax Romare. <laughs> and there's uh, very little you can uh, do about that. Well,
1: when your origin story is the Vietnam war, I suppose it makes sense. I, that's what I thought they were going for in the first Iron Man was updating that the Mandarin to become sort of this or Al Qaeda uh, figure and try and, um, if, it at the very least try a different sort of, um, ethnocentrism as the, as the bad guy. But they, um, I guess that, that bald guy with all the rings just turned out to be a, a, a wannabe or something.
0: Right and so um if you've seen the film you know that they deal with the whole fraught question of who's the mandarin in another way but in a way that does raise the question why bother but yeah. uh
1: yeah but uh, again that question is raised probably more often than not in any Marvel comic or indeed in many DC comics
0: Right and and like all the big blockbusters today um and like the next one we're going to discuss it is over plotted and relies more on Revelations of mysteries than on suspense. And I would suggest that the first of those things is just because these scripts have to go through so many layers of executives now because they're the big horses that the studios ride into or out of profitability, and they get so much beat-by-beat beat attention from so many different people that yeah. the scripts always wind up being a compromise melange of different elements and, uh, you know, that the... Uh, really, really great superhero films managed to overcome this. But this, given the challenges that it faces as one of those tentpole movies. I thought this was uh, reasonably diverting, if not something I'm going to be re-watching again and again
1: on TVD. Yes, certainly by the standards of the tentpole movies of 2013, it looks uh, like a star.
0: And speaking of tentpole movies of 2013, what what'd you think of Star Trek? We're both Star Trek fans, and we have our uh, <laughs> c- clear opinions on uh, uh, what is and isn't uh, suitably uh, Trekkie, and uh, how would you feel about this one?
1: Well, um, I guess, I, I suppose one could be uh, called on the carpet for wanting to have it both ways, given that we were just talking about the problematic nature of having a non-white villain for Iron Man, but Khan is not from England, people. He's from South Asia. That's sort of the whole neat point of Khan is that he's a non-white guy who still believes in eugenic supermen. That was one of the terrific things about his um, uh, his origin story, for gosh sakes, and not only is his origin story tossed off, but the casting is tossed off. But
0: but but the timeline changes somehow retroactively altered his, his ethnicity again.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. In order to become the Master Ace, he had to become white. Why Why wasn't I thinking like the writer of Star Trek Into Darkness? Oh, right, because I'm thinking. Um, yeah, the, uh, you know, as a extended fanfic riff on Star Trek two, I suppose it was all right. There were parts of it that were quite enjoyable, but... None of it made the remotest amount of sense and when we got to the Mario Kart level in um uh in the final act where everyone in the entire in all of Starfleet forgets that they have teleporter technology, it just it, it became just too much and too ridiculous and too awful, even with the best will in the world. So Star Trek into darkness, um You know, while it started with, I think, a a good heart, it it rapidly imploded and fell out of the atmosphere.
0: I tolerated it more than you do, I think. I agree with your criticisms, but I was able to uh, suspend those for for the length of it. I found it improved on the first one in in at least not veering into a ridiculous slapstick, so that was an improvement. (laughs) But it certainly is way over-plotted. It reminded the whole business of um, putting the other con supermen in the torpedoes in order to get them back and forth from the other ship reminded me of the tortured plotting of the first pirates of the caribbean movie where the whole middle of the film is all about going back and forth between two different ships <laughs> and uh, uh it, it is in very much over plotted and i would uh, also point out that uh your first movie had uh, Kirk and Spock go through a character arc in order to become Kirk and Spock at the end. So, what are you doing <laughs> making, putting them on that same character arc again? You know, you have to buckle up people and acknowledge that you have your iconic heroes. now
1: got Kirk and Spock, and maybe they should go out and Kirk and Spock back. It's very hard to take someone seriously when they're trying to do a tribute to uh, Star Trek, when they're showing no particular sign of recognizing anything in Star Trek that works. And it was not any easier, certainly, when it was Rick Berman and Paramount uh, not understanding Star Trek than it is when it's J.J. Abrams and Damon Lindelof not understanding Star Trek.
0: Right, and you could tell that uh, someone made the observation in the development of this that the thing that made the original series great was its allegorical handling of contemporary issues, and that's why you have uh, the con story suddenly being about drone strikes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And just like um, many of those Episodes as they actually are, as opposed to the nostalgic way we remember them, that was, uh, shall we say, somewhat labored.
1: And uh, for a a, a plot development that made no sense, they certainly talked about it an awful lot.
0: Right. Well, the more a thing doesn't make sense, the more you have to talk about it in the script, because you get notes from the studio Mm -hmm. saying... This doesn't make sense. Can you clarify that? And even though secretly you know it doesn't make sense, you end up writing more and more dialogue in an attempt to keep a plot line that really you should jettison, but you can't because the shoot date has already started and yada,
1: yada, yada. I would love to believe that someone in the studio ever sent a note that said this doesn't make any sense. I think that at best they may have sent I don't understand this. But the um, the other problem, of course, with uh, Star Trek in the Darkness is that... Um, who knew getting into darkness involved so much running? <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, I think you could cut that film by 20 minutes just by cutting everyone running from one place to the other. If, if you look at the, at the original show, they didn't spend a lot of time running. And, you know, they were all, you know, just as eager to demonstrate their virility as Chris Pine is. They just found a more effective way of moving people from scene to scene.
0: Yeah, I guess the idea is that you want a sense of movement and and sweep and everything, but uh, unnecessary movement is still unnecessary. Uh, The next one on the list I did not, in fact, see, and I'm wondering if uh, you have. I've never been the biggest Superman fan in the world, and uh, the early reviews of Man of Steel did nothing to lure me out of my home and into the movie theater. Uh, Were you moved by the uh, siren call of Superman?
1: One of my uh, very close friends is in fact the biggest Superman fan in the world, Mike, and he went and saw it and his almost pained bending over backwards review of it convinced me that there was no way that I was going to let Zack Snyder uh, get me again. So I sort of sat back and ignored uh, Man of Steel. If it comes to the second run uh, here at the university, I may see it just because you know superman, but i am I am in no tearing hurry, and certainly after the reviews and the responses to it, in which um there's an awful lot of murder involved for someone named superman i i, I begin to question it i i 'm sure that there's a um uh, a, a deep thinking you know uh, Lewis Lapham quarterly type essay to be written about our superhero's willingness to kill and torture in this dire 21st century of ours.
0: Speaking of Damon Lindelof, he has an, <laughs> an, an interview up right now on Vulture where he actually talks about this. Where yeah, it's where really it's a good. huge spate of uh, films where the collateral damage for what is supposed to be escapist pop culture things, uh, you're starting to see giant body counts racked up and cities destroyed. Oh. And, uh, and really, the, again, that's a result of the uh, studio note process where they keep getting told up the stakes, up the stakes, because it's something that all executives have been told. Mm -hmm. And, of course, they're all upping the stakes, basically, into these apocalyptic visions of things that really actually don't serve the story or the characters that you're there to see. And, in fact, they were under pressure to have the last act of Star Trek be about, you know, destroying Earth or uh, a city on Earth or, or something like that, and they managed to successfully pull back from that. But, you know, that's a bell that's been rung so many times now that it seems completely jarring and uh without having seen Superman it seems like it's extremely jarring given what you would expect would be the ethos of a film with that character in it.
1: I also think that in your comeback to Superman, you starting off with the alien war is firing your best bullet first and you're you're going to regret that when you try and make your next Superman movie because you you know, now that you've had General Zod lead an army of Kryptonians, Brainiac, you know, trying to eat up Metropolis is not going to have the same zing, and that's, I think, you know, you should have started with the with the little guy, and then moved up to the big guy, like Batman taught us.
0: Right, well, at, speaking of, Warners has decided the problem with the Superman movie was that it did not have enough Batman in
1: it. Well, that's the problem with most things. Certainly the problem with, um, uh, Star, <laughs> with Tra- Star Trek in the Darkness.
0: <laughs> and speaking of things without Batman, in them, I guess the next and probably last on our list of giant uh, genre movies uh, was Pacific Rim.
1: Oh, are you going to skip over world, uh, world war Z?
0: Oh, you're right. I am going to skip over world war Z because I gave that a pass. What'd you think of that?
1: I liked world war Z well enough. Um, I saw it with uh, my lovely wife, Sheila, who is a uh, zombie fanatic and, uh, proclaims an agnostic interest in Brad Pitt. So we'll see if that's true. But, uh, she thought that the notion of creating the horde zombies, violates for her the point of seeing a zombie film, which is the barest chance of survival. And I think that by the time it gets to the final act, with the uh, when it pulls it back down to uh, a, 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 I think a fairly original take, if sort of ridiculous, on zombie horror, that uh, it, in her theory, it sort of shot its bolt with the whole crowds of zombies pouring over everything in sort of ant-like human wave fashion. I think that both of them you know, I think both of them looked like they could have worked in that particular movie. Uh, the fundamental, you know, plot logic such as it is, is uh, it hangs on by a thread already. And if you don't go into it with a sort of a charitable spirit, I'm afraid it is going to come apart. But looked at it as, as a series of set pieces, which I guess in some ways is true to the book, um, then... Some of the set pieces worked fairly well, and one or two of them, I think, would have worked really well if they'd had a movie that was actually about that sort of to surround them. I enjoyed his his wife, uh, Meryl Enos a great deal. She was the um, redheaded cop on the American version of The Killing, and I think that seeing her do something besides uh, whine, although she's still moping, is is a is a move up. And I'd kind of like to see her uh, carry a, a movie now that I've seen her act in another thing that isn't. Uh, terribly slack and uh, tiresome.
0: Yes. The, the the thing about the killing is that it makes you want to see those actors in something good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, you actually, I, I kind of wanted to see those same characters in something good. It's like, could we, could we see any, <laughs> any sort of thing that they do that is not horribly, horribly badly paced because you know, Short Scully and Officer McSkevington were both kind of interesting characters. It's just that their story was very tiresome. But enough about A- yes. AMC TV series.
0: Yes. Um, so, uh, Pacific Rim, uh, what'd you think?
1: Giant robots fighting, or technically giant Gundams fighting Kaiju. It's what it said on the tin it was going to be. It was going to be giant Gundams fighting Kaiju. Unusually for a uh, Del Toro film, all the problems with it are foregrounded, so you can get past them and enjoy the film as opposed to having them blow up on you in the third or fourth act the way that they normally do.
0: And by get past them, you mean once you get it on DVD, fast forward through anything that doesn't have a kaiju or Ron Perlman in it?
1: Uh, that's one. That, that's certainly <laughs> one approach. Um, the, the 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 improved Pacific Rim with just the witches and the fighting is um uh, it, it, it's a it's an approach that works on a lot of films from The Matrix on down. Because if you
0: really like movies about a central character with a no discernible iconic or dramatic through line hanging around in a base waiting for monsters to attack, Pacific Rim is your film. <laughs> yeah, I really, really wanted that film to match the level of excitement for it in the Twitter sphere, and I was uh, bored stiff uh, most of the way through, just because that there, there's that character, his intentions from scene to scene do not connect to one another, and although I like <laughs> J- J- Charlie Hunnam as an actor on Sons of Anarchy just fine, he seemed to, in some scenes, just sort of becoming Jack's in Sons of Anarchy as a default position in, in want of something else to do, uh, but... Uh if anyone can tell me what that character's uh consistently expressed through line is, I would be most grateful for the
1: enlightenment. Well maybe it was post-traumatic shock. That's why he's just sort of sitting around affect lessons because he was, you know, all psychically connected to his brother when he died and he's spending the whole movie sort of getting over it and uh his...
0: Except he doesn't then. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well no, but because the kaiju attack and he doesn't have a choice. But that's that's where his inertness and inanition come from. It's not that it's a sloppy, um, uh, half-thought-out script. It's that he's playing a really good character you don't care about.
0: Oh, I see. So just like uh, films about depression that choose to have an unvarying emotional beat in order to replicate the experience of depression... Uh, This is basically doing the same for traumatic catatonia.
1: Exactly. Yeah, that's what it is. It's it's really it's bringing you into the bleed with him, where you can experience the same dull lack of interest in his life that he has.
0: Uh, Well, once again, I I would suggest the supercut where you fast forward through uh, anything that does not have a kaiju or Ron Perlman. In fact, you can probably fast forward through the murky, uh, unintelligible final underwater fight scene too.
1: Yeah. Well, there's, um, th- there were problems with the, um, uh, I, th- one of the things that I did hear going into it was that the fight choreography was terrific. These were going to be the best fights you ever saw. And they're not the best fights I ever saw. You know, uh, Godzilla versus, um, uh, King Ghidorah is still the best fights I've ever seen in the genre. There's just no substitute for that. But the um there are one or two of them that, that that worked fairly well, but a lot of them you couldn't even tell where the giant Gundam was supposed to be and in, in one or two you couldn't tell which kaiju it was supposed to be that was attacking. I think a lot of it is because, like you say, for some bizarre reason you've paid Umpty Ump zillion dollars to get these uh wireframe models and then you shoot them at the bottom of a well and so you can't actually see anything. Um it's not a horror film, it's a monster fighty film. You know, it'd be like shooting a a, a swashbuckling a sword fight at the bottom of a coal mine.
0: Now the whole Hong Kong monster sequence is actually, you know, what I wanted the rest of the movie to be. But, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, since a lot of people who like this kind of stuff are very, very happy if they have, you know, 20 to 30 minutes of things that, uh, actualize their uh, favorite genre tropes. Uh, has been a success for a lot of people, but and, you know, that one sequence, uh, is, pulling a lot of of weight in what is otherwise a slack film. So this leaves my favorite genre movie of the summer as This is the End, the movie about the rapture and then ensuing demonic uh, apocalypse with uh, Seth Rogen and Jay Baruchel and James Franco and uh, crew. And it's, I, I thought, a pretty successful horror comedy, and I was surprised that it did not get more... Attention from the nerdosphere, perhaps because they're not particularly attuned to those performers and the Apatow school as much as they are to something that Guillermo del Toro is doing. But I think, you know, works all the way through both as a comedy and also even as, you know, some of the moments of, of horror are actually surprisingly effective, including the sort of rapture scene at the beginning, which. Uh, dramatizes just how vicious the <laughs> fantasy of the rapture really is, and what it would mean to people if it happened.
1: Yeah, when you are on Patmos tripping uh, balls on amanita mushrooms, I think that your vision of the end times has has uh, a lot to disrecommend itself as a model for living.
0: Um, and there, I would like to quickly mention the non-geeky movies that I uh, liked this season. Particularly, I would note Only God Forgives. Absolutely, terrific Ruffin... Uh, Winning Refn film, which I'm sure will end up high on my top 10 list at the end of the year. So uh, if you have uh, not seen that, it's available on demand and uh, in other formats and may already be out of theaters. If you can see it in the theater, by all means do. It also probably would win my award for score of the year. Yes. Cliff Martinez's score is so much apart. Of uh, that film, and
1: such a reason to see it in the theater because you really want to have that score just sort of all around your head, as opposed to just sort of coming out of the you know speakers you've got. You know, unless you've got a super great sense around uh, surround sound setup, uh, try and see it in in a theater if you can.
0: And so, uh, basically, that's a a story for those of you who are not familiar about uh, Ryan Gosling, who plays an expatriate uh, fight manager in Thailand, who is also mixed up in the drug trade, and his. Brother is killed and his crazy Lady Macbeth of a mother, played by Kristen Scott Thomas, calls up to impel him to revenge against this implacable police vigilante character uh, who expresses the ethos of the title of the film. And it, uh, without saying anything much more, it's a really fascinating exercise in subverted genre expectations
1: yeah it's um it, it's really good for reasons that I'm sure we'll get into like Robin says at the top ten list when we get to the end of the year or when we get to whenever it is you know Oscar time I guess next year I've heard good things about Europa report but I haven't seen it yet but apparently um, it's pretty good and it's a film that uh, came you know probably comes out on like nine screens somewhere with a budget of eight dollars for a promotion so if you can it's sort of a an attempt at a hard science fiction Guys go to the moon Europa and walk around and report. And I'm not sure what happens because I try to avoid letting myself in for it. But I've heard that it's terrific.
0: I have not yet seen uh, Elysium, the follow-up to District 9 about Obamacare. Uh,
1: (laughs) I thought it was about immigration to Space America. I'm so confused. I'm so behind. The
0: reason you're immigrating to Space America is for its healthcare system, So
1: you can get the awesome Obamacare. Well, there you go.
0: Before Midnight, uh, back to non-genre uh, movies, I uh, also liked a lot.
1: Yes, I I enjoy Richard Licklater.
0: And that really sort of sums up a still volatile relationship, even though they've been together for a long time, and uh, is real in a way that uh, uh, none, of the, none of the other films we're discussing is real. <laughs> and also, uh, Francis Ha is uh, sort of a delightful minor key homage to French new wave cinema uh, from Noah Baumbach with uh, Greta Gerwig. Uh, Uh, being very charming in this sort of alternate universe version of girls, uh, and I would uh, recommend that as well. Well, if
1: it's Greta Gerwig, then I certainly will make an effort to go see it, because she was terrific in Damsels in Distress and deserves to be in a lot more uh, clever movies. once again to ask Ken and Robin so let's ask Ken and Robin in the Ken and Robin lightning round Woo-hoo! Woo-hoo! lightning round uh, John Corey asks Ken and Robin have you played other diceless games and if so what as game designers do you think of them
0: I feel this question is like saying as a film goer what do you think of steady cam shots uh, that the diceless element of a game is uh, one tool that you can use to build a game and it can either be Used uh, well or not, depending on the design, and there's nothing intrinsic or extrinsic to uh, diceless games per se that make it uh, that I have an opinion about on on one way or the other. No more than I have an opinion about hammers or pliers.
1: So you're, you've come down off your anti-pliers uh, approach, that's good. I,
0: I, I have, the pliers and I have uh, have uh, buried the hatchet. Good. good. Uh, However, how feelings
1: about hatchets <laughs> yeah. have completely don't, don't get, don't get You started on hatchets. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, and uh, I guess you can sort of divide diceless games into two categories, the first of which is uh, games that randomize by other means, like a uh, drama system uses a card deck when uh, the few situations come up where you need to randomize or games that are just have no randomization uh, whatsoever and what the designer has to watch out for in that latter case is the complete removal of suspense from the resolution mechanic that what randomness does is uh, it gives you that moment like in a movie where you're wondering what's going to happen that's what that's what your die roll your card draw represents and you can replace that but you should replace it with something.
1: Yeah, to sort of answer the question of the Diceless games that I've played, I think my favorite are probably Amber Diceless, which uh I've had a great deal of fun with, although as a game designer, I'm still not sure if it actually works, or if you are dependent, if you are so dependent on a good GM, and not in the sense of a morally good GM, but a GM who is good at running Amber, although morally good doesn't hurt. And also, I've, uh I think my favorite of the card-driven uh games is probably Castle Falkenstein, which is Diceless, I suppose, in, you know, in, in, uh, Uh, de jure, if not necessarily de facto, since a randomizer is a randomizer is a randomizer and a bell curve is a bell curve is a bell curve. So, but I do enjoy the notion of keeping your cards in your hand that happens in Falkenstein so that the rhythm of the game manages to perfectly replicate the rhythm of a sort of a Fulaton or Penny Dreadful where you save your really great cards for the final play so that you can make sure to get out of whatever the death trap is or defeat the villain in the final scene. And I think that the notion of having a hand of cards is actually an interesting uh, thing that can be looked at. I've, I've played uh, James Wallace's at La- Las Vegas, which is in which I played in playtest. I don't know how it uh, wound up, but it started out as a pretty strong diceless game. But again, I played it with James Wallace. So the whole question of a, of a great GM is once more mooted.
0: Our next question comes from Daniel Stronka, who asks, if Sherlock Holmes is pursuing you, how do you escape from him? And I would say, first of all, that Sherlock Holmes is an iconic character who solves problems uh, by using his iconic ethos, which in this case is assembling from the tiny details of the world a sense of order that does not appear to others. And so the thing to do with when confronted by any iconic hero is to not do anything that he can solve by being an iconic hero. So in order to get away from Sherlock Holmes, I would say that Ken and I would not have our location be a mystery, but we would have some other reason why Sherlock Holmes could not get us, for example, politics
1: the canonical way to escape from Sherlock Holmes is to get married and move to another continent. So I've already done that. I'm ahead of the game. I've beaten Holmes at his own game before it even started. Jeremiah Widowrongel asks Ken and Robin, if you could make one and only one suggestion each to game masters of your games, what piece of advice would you impart? Robin, what one piece of advice would you impart?
0: Be aware of the emotional dynamic in the room. Uh, See whether your players are engaged or not, and to learn to read the signs of that. That is uh, not necessarily always an easy thing to do in a hobby dominated by introverts, but learning to read your players better uh, with the signals that they are giving off and then adjust accordingly, I think, is the number one skill of the Game Master.
1: I would say that follow Robin's advice, uh, and since I it's one each, I will give the second piece of advice, which is a world-building piece of advice that I give, use earth use history read as much real history as much real culture as much real linguistic science whatever it is that you're interested in that you think the game is going to be about as possible and then use as much of that as you think you can get away with it's a lot faster and easier than making things up and it fits more naturally into the game world you won't spend as much time defending your uh choices about how many guys are in a, a submarine if you've already looked it up so i would say Uh, Do the reading, which is generally good advice. And certainly if you're going to game master anything remotely connected to Earth, you know, make it less remotely connected to Earth. Tie it up.
0: And I think that we have both just uh, reiterated things that we always say.
1: That's what one advice each is.
0: Right. So now we come to Mark Valente's question. He says, many RPGs are centered around violence. There's nothing wrong with this. However, if I was in a particularly non-violent mood, what RPGs would you recommend, Kent?
1: For non-violent RPGs, I would recommend um, games that have uh, strong social components. I would look at games like, ironically, um, games like uh, Vampire, games that have social uh, combat mechanics. As we've discussed previously, a non-violent game is not the same as a game without conflict. So I would would look at games with strong social conflict, strong emotional conflict elements. And another possible uh, way around that is games that seem sort of dissociated from real-world consequences, games of dream and fantasy and exploration, and the example that I would give there is Kevin Allen Jr.'s game Sweet Agatha, which is about just as much violence as you want it to be about, but is actually about your exploration of the dream world that is evoked by the components of the game, and I think is terrific. I recommend that anyway, and if you're in a more um, exploratory mode as opposed to a hack-and-slash mode, looking at sweet agatha it might be the way to go
0: the examples that immediately come to mind of course are my own designs uh both skullduggery and drama system have settings that can be played or or rather that will be played with no violence in them whatsoever you can take the violence out of skullduggery for example as the main book does by setting one of its scenarios in and around a high school as they put on a musical production and there's uh, no provision whatsoever for uh, fighting in that because that's uh, not what that's about and also uh, many in the drama system settings for example Andrew Peregrine's Jane Austen tribute Uh, vice and virtue, of course, you're not going to have the characters uh, resorting to fisticuffs at any time in that. And so you can just remove the whole prospect of violence from either of those games. I would also point people to the works of Emily Carabas, who's got a whole series of games, including Shooting the Moon, which are about uh, uh, various aspects of love and romance. And uh, that's, of course, the uh, complete opposite side of the dramatic coin and its uh, conflict is uh, very different. It's a conflict that moves you towards working things out and towards a uh, union of opposites rather than a a victory and a defeat. Tune your tinfoil hat to the right frequency, you can locate the present whereabouts of the conspiracy corner. In this case, it is among the map racks and compass roses of the cartography hut, where we will this time examine something that both of us were immediately alerted <laughs> to by many listeners, uh, as they are now want to do. And that is the giant pentagram incised in a peninsula on the isolated steppes of Kazakhstan. Uh, Ken, what have you discovered about this new locus of conspiracy theory that is accessible to us by an aerial map?
1: The the thing that I have discovered is that uh, the conspiracy has jumped on this with both feet. Once their vile plot was uh, uncovered by uh, the good people at Google Maps and open source satellite imagery everywhere, uh, they got a cover story up uh, that it was a park. It was a park built by the Soviets, probably in the uh, mid-70s, when the little town of Lysiakovsk, which is the closest uh, town nearby, uh, was sort of cranking up its horrible, polluting uh, uh, refineries in order to destroy the environment of Kazakhstan. To make the people of uh, Lysiakovsk happy that they were living in a sludge pit, the Soviets built a lovely park, which was landscaped in a giant star because of course the soviets enjoyed giant stars as much as the next guy putting uh one on their flag for the delectation of people uh in on google earth much later and so the uh the the people could go up to their little park in the nearby lake and uh, wander the scenic paths which were lined with trees so that they would show up even better from the air um this theory Makes a little less sense when you realize that the Soviet star is traditionally not a pentagram and almost never has a circle around it, as the Lysiakovsk pentagram definitely does, or or pentacle, depending on how you want to uh, to uh, uh, identify it.
0: Well, I'm glad this finally got weird, because up until now this was as weird as finding a fleur de lis in France. Yeah, right.
1: It was a star in uh, in in the Soviet Union, which is. Not particularly unusual. Uh, Interestingly, if you look at the uh, pentagram, it does not touch the outside of the circle uh, as a normal magic circle does. So there is either a trench dug underneath it uh, inside the the outside concentric ring that has been filled in or contains silver links or uh, buried political prisoners or whatever else they use in Soviet necromancy. Or um, they have built their magical containment wrong. Uh, in clumsy communist fashion and unleashed that which they sought to put down which would kind of explain a lot really but the uh but the basic um story the cover story is this was a park and there's lovely pictures on a russian uh website englishrussia.com where you can see uh the <laughs> really terrible looking park i don't know if it was if they just drove there you know, in the fall or something, when the weather is is awful. Because or we could um, just say
0: park built during the Soviet era in Kazakhstan <laughs> and uh, form our own conclusions. <laughs> form our
1: own conclusions of whether it ever looked nice. Um, yeah, but the uh, but th- but that is the that's the cover story that they've that they've uh, put down on it.
0: So when you say cover story, of course, this suggests that the uh, truth as is buried underneath the surface. So uh, what uh, sorts of uh, truths could we dig up? Is this perhaps related to the? Uh, aforementioned early steppe cultures that uh, probably gave birth to the uh, Indo-European language group?
1: Well, the early steppe cultures did leave an awful lot of burial mounds in the area, the Andronovo culture specifically, which um, was probably the eastern lobe of the Indo-European language group, not the Urheimat of the Indo-European language group. These were guys who, when the going gets tough, instead of going South out of uh, the Ukraine into Iran and eventually India, or west out of the Ukraine into Europe, went east out of the Ukraine into Kazakhstan, which was probably a better idea in 2000 BC than it is now, but is still probably you know the, the, they are the Indo-European Aryan supermen who got the short end of the stick. I think.
0: Right. They they chose to settle or sort of got pushed out to uh, an area that was much like. Uh, where they were, or perhaps they were even just another group that was sort of influenced by the the main core group.
1: Yeah, although the DNA um, of the of the burials indicates that they had, for uh, all you uh, Himmlers listening in, uh, light skin, uh, light hair, and blue or green eyes. So they're certainly um, <laughs> Nordic supermen wandering the desolate hell like plains of Kazakhstan, which were probably less desolate because there was uh, more water then.
0: Yes. Um. Now. Uh, This culture was known for having lots of sky gods and lots of uh, male gods, and uh, not uh, so much with the earth gods or the female gods. How does that uh, square with, uh, let's say, that uh, this has to be an atavistic resurgence of uh, something that they uh, made? How does this uh, square with that? What exactly were uh, either the uh Soviet planners of the seventies doing on behest of the uh sky gods of the Andronovo people,
1: well, I think that the uh the, the the pentacle there is a signal to the sky gods, as indeed it turned out to be um as opposed to any sort of a um anything intended to hold something down in the ground. The sky gods probably you know fly back and check up on their buddies in the Andronovo culture every so often, and this turns out to be the way that they are to be drawn. It's interesting that the Andonovo culture is also possibly the guys who invented the spoked wheel chariot and that may explain why the edges of the circle are outside the points of the pentagram that they extend like spokes on a chariot wheel to indicate to the sky gods that this is not just some boring pentagram. Yes, these are your old buddies in the Andonovo culture uh, saying hi. And why the Soviets are talking to sky gods is an interesting question, although it's not super far in Siberian terms from where the Tunguska meteorite hit. So the sky gods may have said, Hey, what's up? And then the Soviets rapidly built a Please don't shoot any more meteors at us pentagram, or a Hey, shoot some meteors at the capitalist uh, running dogs over across the ocean pentagram.
0: Right, and now that we've seen that the offering of the Soviets on behalf of the Andronova culture to the sky gods has been revealed. That obviously indicates to us that the sky gods are now incarnate in Google's satellite and in the other various satellites orbiting the earth. Uh, I guess that's a nice, uh, cushy location for them. It saves them the energy of uh, orbiting the earth all on their own. So what does that mean for us now that we know that the uh, ancient gods of this sky culture are now watching us from our satellites
1: i think i think um i want to just stop and sort of admire how well that works uh, especially when we were talking <laughs> previously about the notion of uh, the, the linguistic artifact as the containment for the uh, for, for the for the power or for the entity or for the truth the notion that we've got the act of perceiving this pentangle is what causes the sky gods to reify, right? That as long as there's no pentangle there, they just sort of float around and every now and again they act out and throw meteors at something. But once they've perceived it, once you've sort of focused their attention on something, they can now focus their attention on you. And, of course, that's where they incarnate into all of the computers that are floating around up there on the satellites, pointing the various keyhole cameras and whatever the the Russian equivalent of keyhole is, the super uh, surveillance cameras that are making life so interesting for so many people around the world. I I think that the uh, thing that is happening now can either go towards your sort of Skynet, Rise of the Machines, Slaughter All Humans uh, way, which is a little boring, I think. It's been done. It's been done. Or you can start having uh, the Sky Gods, through the use of their um, of their privileged Google Earth positions, start trying to cause more uh, people to create more things that they can pay more attention to, thus increasing their focus. And that at some point you're going to tip over and it's not so much that the Skynet will achieve sentience, it's that sentience will achieve uh Skynet, really. that The, the sentience will be called into being not so much uh, created as an emergent phenomenon from the computers, but summoned down by our act of attempting to placate or attract the attention of it. I, th- I think that right now you've got sort of one eye is lazily open at you. This is like when you're trying to steal the one thing from Smaug. There's a, a moment where it can happen. But at some point, both eyes are going to be open and you're going to start seeing pentagrams pop up all kinds of places uh, on on Google Earth or spoke wheel chariot symbols or anything else you can justifiably pretend. In a nearby area to this one, there's already a uh, sort of an X in a box that no one seems to know what that is. There are um, interlocked circles and diamonds elsewhere in New Mexico that there's um, circles and diamonds that are supposed to be Scientological but are obviously an attempt by someone to... Uh, attract the attention of these sky gods uh, much like the Nazca lines were and the fact that the Nazca lines are sitting uh, right across uh, the the frontier there where the the new uh, lithium mines are going in and there's huge environmental damage to the Nazca lines right
0: well it, it, it has to be the case that there would be sky god presence in North America as well because first of all the language group uh, is Uh, very well ensconced in in North America. So you've uh, got that going for you. And clearly the reason that, first of all, we had the Cold War and then the Cold War wound down uh, shortly after the construction of this pentagram is that the sky gods, first of all, needed DARPA Mm -hmm. uh, in order to then lead to Google Earth. So they needed to create the uh, Internet. And so in order to do that, they had to create a... uh, clash of civilizations between the Soviet Union and uh, the West. And uh, once that was uh, rolling and taken care of, uh, they could then allow the Soviet Union to, to wind down. That was no longer a necessary technology to them. Perhaps this will lead to sort of an uh, interesting twist on the idea of the resurgent gods. And then it could be that the uh, sky gods are uh, mainly benevolent and they just uh, want All of those uh, cattle sacrifices that they've been missing out on for the last uh, couple of millennia. And in exchange for that, they're perfectly willing to uh, uh, give us Boingo hotspots and uh, weather apps and, Mm. uh, you know, uh, Google Drive, all of these other things. So uh, if if that's their plan, maybe, uh, you know, we can just all uh, relax and accept for the devastating environmental impact of raising even more cattle. This may be, uh, you know, as magical inbreaks go, this might be uh, getting off easy.
1: Yeah, the notion of benevolent sky gods is still going to have a fairly deforming effect on the world. And I think that, uh, again, in the same series of crazy things uh, that you can see from Google Earth, I note that good old uh, U.S. Air Force is already trying to get the sky gods in a happy mood because there is an enormous Colonel Sanders face that you can see in Nevada. (laughs) And if that is not an attempt to get the sky gods to look over there.
0: To, to get them to switch to chicken. I'm not sure they're going to go for that.
1: Does more environmentally friendly chicken. Um, that they, uh, that the sky gods, or at least to make the sky gods sort of happy and in tune with white suited, beaming, bearded America as opposed to, you know, weird, dangerous, horse sacrificing Indo-Europeans. Well, if we want to kill the sky gods, feeding them a lot of KFC is the way to do it. <laughs> well, it's, I, I think that the Air Force is playing a long game here. You can't, um, uh, you can't count them out. They've got a they've got a 500-year plan.
0: Well, I think now that we've uh, explained the secret history of that, even though we are uh, punchy and getting ready to go off and pack for Gen Con, so if you're wondering when our Gen Con in-review episode will be, that will be next week. I think we have completed our task here once again. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to
1: thank our sponsors. Gorilla Games, Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software,
0: and Pelgrane
1: Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple.
0: Derive our proto language at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com.
1: Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws.
0: See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.